Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 7 and can be found on page 971. Matthew chapter 7, page 971. Chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Well, this is the end of our... Culture Matters series, and we've been looking at different culture values, which are the temptation for us in terms of blending in and becoming like the world and where we have to stand firm. And the, uh, the two culture values we've looked at so far, the first was self-belief, the other one was hedonism. We looked at that last week. These are rather private in terms of how they work themselves out still big pressure on us, but a more of a a private temptation. This morning, I want us to raise a very public one in terms of a culture value. As our culture over the last decades has moved increasingly away from its Christian foundations, as it's become what we call secular, it's led to a new moral consensus. And this new moral consensus is what guides our culture in terms of judgments about what is right and what is wrong. And that's the culture value that I want to look at this morning. Now, I have just put myself in the middle of a minefield. There's lots of things that can blow up here. So, I'll try to speak carefully and you listen carefully to what I really am saying, what I'm not saying. This new moral consensus, very briefly, I think began in the 1960s with changing attitude towards sex, 
and with a new sexual liberation. And then into our times, it's ended, it's culminated in the LGBT movement. And that has led in the moral consensus, the new one, to a changing definition of what marriage is and what the family is. And there's also been a a, a huge modification in how we see gender. I'm thinking here of the transgender movement. So sex is the front end of the new moral consensus, but, and here's where it gets tricky, lots of other things are lumped into this consensus. Things like racism, so important for our attention. The environment, such a critical issue. Abortion, assisted suicide, I could keep listing it. All these things are lumped into this new moral consensus. It's incredibly public because it's tied to human rights and it's highly political. That's the backdrop to this moral consensus. Now one thing we can say as believers with respect to the new moral consensus is that a massive shift has happened and we are now on the wrong side of it. I think just a few decades ago, Christians were largely viewed outside the church as people who are goody-two-shoes. I mean, we didn't have sex before marriage. Chuckle, 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 all bless them. We were the, the righteous ones. Now, today, it's not too much to say that the tables have turned, and we are in very different territory. Christianity has come under culture's judgment and we no longer belong to the side of the angels. We are no longer the good people. Something huge and drastic has happened. So with this culture value that confronts us with a judgment now, you're not the good people, There's a message to us which goes very strongly. It's time for you to stop judging. you got centuries of that. Just stop it now. And you need to start being tolerant. And of course, underlying that is the message of you guys are just not nice. You're you're kind of ugly in your morality. And it's time to start getting nice. Not long ago, I was in a conversation with someone who wasn't a Christian in the pub. We were having a great time, and and I just dropped it in. I'm a Christian. And immediately a flinch, and he came right out and said it, but Andrew, you're such a nice guy. How can you possibly be a Christian? Those were his words. I think he's reflecting more and more that out of this new moral consensus. Now, this shift has happened very rapidly, and we're struggling to adjust. I would say to different degrees, all of us in the public space experience this. Some of you have come up and said, in my office, it's so intense. You experience it in the doctor's surgery, in the bus stop. I was on a plane the other week to Bucharest. I experienced it in the conversation I had there. It's in the air. And we pick up pretty quickly. We are out of step. Now, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here. And I'm going to suggest, I really believe this, that we have entered 
a new era of persecution. Now, I'm not saying pull out your hankies and let's have a pity party. It's not the purpose of this morning. But I think think we've entered a moment when now there is a time of persecution. And of course, the Bible, Jesus Christ, says we shouldn't be surprised. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard a bit of that just now, back to the Beatitudes, chapter 5, Jesus tells us we should expect persecution if we're going to be his faithful followers. Blessed are those, he says, who are persecuted because of righteousness, faithfulness to me. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say lots of evil against you because of me. Faithfulness to me, Jesus says here, will likely result in a kind of persecution. I think we're there. So, this culture value is the one that's public and which invites persecution. Now, the key thing I think we have to appreciate as we wrestle through this is that today, Christians are being tested with respect to their allegiance, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as the pressure mounts, the question for us is, where will we be aligned, especially publicly, to culture and its moral consensus or to Jesus Christ? And that forms the outline for my talk. The pressure to public alignment to the culture, or do we stand firm and keep our public alignment to Christ? So here we are, we're bombarded with the new moral consensus. There's a duress that comes with that. Underlying message, don't be judgmental, be tolerant. So I'm going to ask with you very quickly, how does this judgment work? The text, which was the core of of the one I've chosen, Matthew 7, the first seven verses, is a text about judgment. And Jesus reflects here different kinds of judgment. There's different kinds of measures. Now we're asking, what is the kind of judgment that we face from culture today? And what is the measure, the particular measure of this judgment? Now, here again, it gets tricky, because this measure that we're under today is not a very clear one. Most measures are clear. If you break the speed limit, go through the speed camera, don't get me started, and suddenly you know you've broken a measure. You get a letter, it says, according to law, you've broken it, and there was a sign there. When it comes to the new moral consensus, it's not as clear, but there is a measure. And I'm going to quickly rattle through four tendencies of how this judgment works, just to help us to understand how this measure of the moral consensus works. Four things. I'm almost just listening. First of all, it's a lumping judgment. It just puts all kinds of stuff together in the judgment. I said that in my introduction. Sex might be the front end, but lots of other stuff is put into the new moral consensus. So it might include LGBT and the environment. It's all put there as one. And I think increasingly we experience this. At the Round Church over the last few years, we've had non-Christian academics join us, which has been wonderful, and we have lunch conversations. One of my early ones I've just got there is I put in a little plug for the Christian view of the family. Within one minute, 
I was homophobic, a racist, a climate-warming denier, and worst of all, a Trump lover. How did we get there? It's how the judgment tends to work. It's lumping. And that makes it very complicated for us as Christians because there's lots of stuff in that consensus that I am very interested in, that we must engage. Because it's lumped together, it's tricky. That's the first thing. The second is that it's a visceral judgment. It happens from the gut. Or the term is it's affective rather than reasoned out with the mind, the brain. And that's really important as we think about it. The source of its power culturally is that this moral consensus grabs the affections. That's what it's called its, its power base. And it's far more commanding than what grabs the main. So it functions from the gut. People just feel these things. And that's why lots of complex moral issues are lumped into this visceral response. And I have to say, and many non-Christian culture commentators are now saying the same, it tends not to be very reasonable. And that makes it hard to, to work with and to deal with. Okay, so it's lumping, it's visceral. The second is it works with a very strong sense of righteousness. In this Matthew 7 passage, Jesus is challenging the kind of judgment that comes with superiority. You can't see very well. The high ground, let me just take the speck from your eye. Now, he's addressing us as Christians there. But that's what a certain kind of judgment brings. A sense of moral superiority. Having the high ground. And this new moral consensus comes with a very strong sense of righteousness. And those who are not with the consensus are unrighteous, even immoral, which is how many contemporary people see Christianity with respect to its morality. It's not moral, it's immoral. And then finally, it's the kind of judgment, fourthly, that functions in outrage and disgust. You just have to go online a bit and engage the moral issues. And you can pick up its tone. There's a, we've become very cantankerous, our culture, haven't we? There's a lot of outrage around. And that outrage is often reflected as moral disgust coming out of this visceral way of approaching the subject. So, if that's how the judgment works in terms of this culture value we need to appreciate the second point I have here, which is the pressure of it for us. And the pressure is a tremendous pressure to conform to it. And that's what we see in this new moral consensus. It works in a very crowd-based manner. The group feels with great strength that they're on the side of justice and righteousness. And that creates the dynamic of the group. We're on the side of the angels. And it also gives a very strong sense of belonging, especially for young people. They become part of the crusade, and they find their identity in that. Now, much of the crusade has some good stuff in it, but the point is it's very group-based. And it defines who people are. 
Now, because of how the judgment works, especially because it's from the gut, it works as what we call a zero-sum game. And here's where the lumping comes in. You're either in with the group or you're out. There's no middle ground. And that's what we face today as believers. And because there's an in, there's also an out, and that out is called the out group. And in a context where there's lots of outrage swirling around, the out group gets profiled. I told you, no pity party. I'm just trying to explain what we're all seeing. And the out group is profiled today largely as the Christians. Comes through constantly. Part of our work in Christian heritage say it's not all bad. The history of what Christianity has, has, has given to our culture. So we become very much part of the out group. Now I have to say here that there are some Christian voices in the public square who don't help our cause. You hear them and you just groan. You think every stereotype of us being the ugly out group is just being reinforced by the way you talk, by how you address the matter, so we can make things worse for ourselves. But my point is, this is how it's set up. Now this group dynamic, the in-group on the side of the angels, and the out-group, who are now judged, makes a huge pressure to conform. It is massive today. Because it's not easy. I don't know if my skin is really, really thin, but there are certain kind of conversations. I, I find myself just beaten because of how I'm caricatured. And the pressure then is to start giving in. It's not nice to be profiled as immoral in your, in your viewpoint of how the world should be under God. And that is where today the pressure to worldliness comes in. We just want to blend in. The fight just becomes too much. The fight not against the culture, the fight to remain faithful to Christ. So we want to start aligning ourselves with the culture in terms of the moral consensus so we don't stand out. I should say here, it just overwhelmed me this week as I thought this through. Our children, our young children face this moral consensus and this judgment in the playground, in the school. I've had teachers from this congregation, heads of departments say, yes, this is how it works. So we have to protect our children, pray for them, nurture them, because this is very hard, very challenging for them. If I was going to think of a biblical story, piece of history that, that really gets at it, I'd go to Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of this massive Babylonian empire, he sets up a golden statue that's 90 feet high. That's, that's pretty, pretty conspicuous. I mean, you, you can't miss it. And he says, everyone publicly has to bow down. And then we've got Shadrach, Meshach, and as I used to call him as a kid, to bed we go. Um, what are they going to do? And they stand firm. And they go to the fiery furnace. We're under a similar kind of public pressure in terms of conforming. So that's the pressure, the judgment, how it works, 
the pressure then to conform in terms of our public alignment to culture. What about our public alignment to Christ? In the face of this pressure, the judgment, be part of the in-group, not the out-group, how can we as Christians remain faithful? How can our allegiance stay strong? Well, there's two things I want to say. The first is this. We have to know from the depth of our being that we belong to Jesus first. He has to be first in our heart, first in our affection, so we can stand with integrity with him and for him. He is in the furnace with us. That's what we need to know. I am Christ because he's purchased me and he is mine. We need to be cemented to that. I think the temptation to compromise for Christians today isn't firstly the moral one, that we're going to cave in on all the moral issues. The test of our compromise is going to be who is our allegiance to, to the in-group or to Christ. Will it be to the crowd, to align with their moral consensus, we can bypass the judgment, or will we stand firm with him, no matter what the cost. And I think it's only out of the reality of a growing allegiance to our wonderful Savior that we can stand against the pressure. And that actually is what the Sermon on the Mount is giving us, the basis for this allegiance. Who's speaking to us in the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. The one who's speaking is our Lord and King. Jesus is our Lord and King, and he has the authority to make the judgment about how we stand in culture. And who's he, he addressing as the king? Well, he's addressing the group, his group, his kingdom, and saying, this is how you're to be in the world, even against the face of opposition and persecution. We could spend hours just looking at how the Sermon on the Mount builds us up in our confidence and allegiance to help us stand firm. But this is the point. We have to have him first in our heart. We have to know we belong first to him. I believe the church is now in another historic moment where we're being sifted in terms of our allegiance. And the point is we have to cement it to Christ first. The second thing then, in terms of our public alignment, is we're freed in him to be salt and light. I'm not saying for a moment, because we're getting the judgment, we're getting the pressure, that we should run away, go into a ghetto, and get safe. If ever the world needed the salt and light of Jesus that we bring, it's now. In terms of the family, and lots of other social justice issues, the environment, what Arasha calls creation care. We have to bring something. And that's what Jesus calls us to be. Let's read together. We know these verses. We know them well, but we're going to read them again. Matthew 5, verse 13. The king says to us today, you are the salt of the earth. The world needs our salt. But if the salt loses its saltiness, we become worldly and blend in. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, addressed to us today, are the light of the world. 
And the world needs this light, the light of Christ through us. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We must today be the salt and light of the world. Now, if we had a Puritan time slot here, which is three and a half hours for a sermon, we could begin to look at Matthew 7, the first seven verses, because these verses tell us how to stand in the world as it is today with respect to judgment. And I'm just throwing this out. Jesus says here that we shouldn't judge or else we'll be judged. And we need to be careful of the measure that we use. And we need to be careful not to be self-righteous as we engage culture today. And there's great, great wisdom here. I think this is not the moment to get involved in the slanging match. Some Christians are doing that. It's just creating more outrage. We have to be faithful to Christ, salt and light in the world where we are, and that will make the difference. I think Paul gives us wisdom on this in this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. I finish with this. Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and let your work be good so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Allegiance to Christ not then withdraw the freedom to be salt and light. For some, it's going to be more public, maybe speaking to issues of the family and so forth. But all of us have a job to do in terms of being in the world and being Christ to the world. And I think one of the best ways we can do that today is making our ambition to lead a quiet and a good life. Not a self-righteous life, not an angry life because of how we're being judged, a good life. A life that reflects Christ and reflects the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's pray, firstly, for courage. We need courage, so Christ is first. Our allegiance is tied down to him. And then, on the basis of that, to bear fruit in the world. Not to get caught up in the culture wars, the fight, the anger, but to be true salt and light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you are the Lord and King, that you are the leader of your kingdom, the group that you have gathered to bring you glory in this world. And we confess that it's hard to stand today. The pressures are enormous, and we pray for courage of your Holy Spirit to take our stand of allegiance to you And Lord, help us to be salt and light in the way that you want us to be. Um, And we ask that in this moment when we're being sifted, that your church, that we would be faithful to what you have called us to. So thank you that you have equipped us for everything we need, for life and godliness. And we ask you for more and more of that. And we pray this in your most wonderful name. Amen.